Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. We'll be taking a break from the book of Daniel, which we've been studying for the last 11 weeks or so, and we'll be turning our attention to the book of Isaiah. So if you have your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 41. In the Pew Bibles, that's page 1122. Again, 1122 is where we're going to be. Hear the word of the Lord. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth. From its farthest corners, I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. May God bless the reading of His Word. Join me as we pray. Father, this morning we long to encounter You. We long not simply for more information, Father, but we long for a fresh encounter with our Savior. And so, Lord, may Your Holy Spirit stir up our affections for You. Lord, we know that these words are as applicable and true today as they were almost three millennia ago when the prophet Isaiah penned them. And so, Lord, through them, change us. Help us to have a stronger faith in you as you draw us near to yourself. In Christ's name I pray, amen. The book of Isaiah is one of the largest books in the entire Bible at 66 chapters, 1,291 verses, 25,608 words. It's a fairly hefty book. Uh, In fact, if you divide it by chapters, it is the second longest book in the entire Bible. And I think, and this might just be me speaking out of my own weakness, but I think because it is so big, we as Christians tend to skip over it. Uh, we, we tend to choose when choosing our daily devotions, when picking a book that we're going to work through. We go for the shorter ones, don't we? We go for the first Johns. We go for the Galatians, the, the ones that you can knock out in one sitting, not an entire year. And I think sometimes we're a little intimidated by the book of Isaiah because it seems so distant. It seems so long ago, almost 3,000 years ago in a land far, far away, and so we tend just to kind of skip over it. But I want to argue today that the book of Isaiah is far more similar to our situation than I think we give it credit for. You see, Isaiah was writing in the mid-8th century. Uh, And if you're familiar with your Israeli history, I know most of you guys are up on that. After the reign of King Solomon, the kingdom of Israel split into two. You had Israel to the north, and who was to the south? Judah. And the capital of Judah was? Jerusalem, and that is where Isaiah is writing from. Now, if you pull back the camera lens from those two, to the north of Israel was Assyria. And Assyria was a dominant threat. Assyria was the schoolyard bully, always sharpening their swords, always longing to conquer and accumulate more wealth and property, 
always invading, always enslaving. Now, to buffer this, to to buffer any threats from Assyria, the northern kingdom actually formed a political and military alliance to their neighbor, Aram. Now, God told them not to do that, but they did it anyway because it was convenient and it seemed safe. When Judah, the southern kingdom, refused to join this political alliance, Israel and Aram actually invaded them. To the south of Judah, you had a superpower in the world at the time, Egypt. And Egypt was a sprawling, sprawling kingdom, and they wanted to take over the entire world. And God's people found themselves situated in the Middle East, and it was a literal powder keg waiting to go off at any moment. Now, we've come far beyond that, right? Thank goodness things have changed over there. But this was the situation of the time. And God's people found themselves sandwiched on all sides by foreign armies that wanted to conquer, wanted to set up base in their land, wanted to enslave, wanted to dominate, wanted to take everything that they had worked for. And they find themselves in a situation of perpetual fear. You see, every day they would turn on Fox News or CNN or wherever they got their news at the time, and they would see headlines of so-and-so tested a new missile or an armored chariot, and they would get scared. They would think, who's going to invade us today because we never know when we're going to look on the horizon and see an army marching our way. And this naturally introduces volatility into the market. Stocks are down. People are losing their life savings. Jobs are on the chopping block, and people are scared. There's social and civil unrest, and this is where God's people found themselves. And and, and don't we, to some degree, find ourselves living in a similar situation? Now, we might not have foreign threats seeking to invade our land, but we do find ourselves sandwiched on all sides by legitimate fears. The world is a scary place, isn't it? You see, some of us today, we're fearful that our employer's not doing so well, and they need to scale back, and it just so happens that our job is the one that might be on the chopping block. And then we start running down the scenario in our minds that, well, if I lose my job, I lose my income. If I lose my income, they shut the power off. If they shut the power off, the groceries go bad. How are we going to live? that's scary. Or maybe you're fearful that your child is already showing signs of rebellion. They're already out partying and drinking and pulling away from the church, and any talk of gospel, any talk of church-related activities is something they don't want to hear, and you're scared. At any given moment, one phone call could change everything about our lives, couldn't it? I mean, if you just think about that, one phone call could change the direction of your lives. Or as Don Henley from the Eagles says, in a New York minute, everything can change. Yeah, there's legitimate fear on all sides of us. And see, the people in Judah felt that. They felt the weight of this fear surrounding them on all sides. And it just so happens that around the time of Isaiah 41 being written, they are being tempted to start forming alliances with their neighbors, things that God told them not to do. They're tempted to compromise and turn to foreign deities. 
and they're tempted to compromise on their faith. And in the midst of this very situation, God speaks. Look back at verse 8, because this is what God says. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners, I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you, and I have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. In the midst of chaos, in the midst of fear, God speaks to His people and says, I chose you, and I am with you. While all of the pagan nations are forming political alliances and seeking security in the accumulation of wealth and weapons and power, while they are seeking security in military alliances and in things made by human hands, God says, you do not fear because I'm your God. And believer, today, this is the truth that we stand in that our freedom from fear, our security comes not in weapons and that we live in America and that everything is going well in the stock market or that we have a plush 401k or if things go bad, we could liquidate our assets and make it for another few months. We stand in the security that our God reigns and that He is faithful. Here's the thing, over and over and over in this passage, God bases His faithfulness on us, not in, not in our ability, not in something that we do, not some kind of karma, you did well, so I'm going to take care of you. What does He base it on? Look back at the passage. But you, Israel, my servant, I have chosen you. I took you, verse 9. I called you, verse 9. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you. I have not rejected you. Verse 10, I am with you. I am your God. In the world of theology, we, we, we have a big word for this. It makes it sound cool. This is called a unilateral covenant. And it's basically a fancy way of saying a one-way promise. You see, God's faithfulness in the lives of believers is grounded not on your ability to perform or your faithfulness. God's faithfulness is grounded in Him and His promises. And believers, I'm here to tell you, that's a really good thing, right? One amen, thank you. That's a really good thing, right? Amen. All right, do a little bit better that time. We'll work on it, we'll work on it, we'll get there. That's a good thing. God's faithfulness to you is not based on your faithfulness to Him. Praise Christ. Because how many times, believers, have we woken up after a thousand bad decisions going further than we ever said that we would go when we made that promise at summer camp back when we were 14 years old and said, Lord, I'll never do that thing again. And then for two decades, we continue to do that thing, and we feel like and we believe that we have outsinned the love of God, and He's still faithful. He still loves us over and over and over again. He proves Himself faithful, doesn't He? I mean, just think about your own life. Just think about your own life for a minute. If you look back at all of the things that have come into your life, 
Hasn't God been faithful? Even the times where you thought he wasn't there, even the times where you genuinely believed he didn't care, and we look back and we go, that's where God walked with me. Or as the old poem might say, that's where he carried me because I didn't have the strength to walk. Or sometimes he even drags us kicking and screaming, but he goes with us. Our God goes with us. So if you're a, a note taker, if you need your points, if you're type A like me and you have to have point one, sub point, then point two, here's your point one. God's faithfulness is grounded in his covenant with us. Okay? Point one, God's faithfulness is grounded in his covenant with us. Because he chose us, he is faithful to us. That's God's character. All right, sub point A, hit tab, all right? Sub point A is this. Therefore, that frees us from fear. Now, you will experience fear. If you've lived more than, I don't know, 30 minutes, you know that fear is legitimate. There are real things to be worried about. And in the midst of it, God says, do not fear, for I am your God. Point two is this. If that is true, if God is faithful, then we can move from fear to faith. We can move from a life of fear to a life of the subtle reassurance, the intensely personal care of God is with us. Doesn't God prove this over and over and over? If you don't believe me, look at uh, Matthew chapter 8. This is just one of many places we could go in the Scriptures this morning. And if you want to go back to the Daniel series, think Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and the fiery furnace where God delivers them. Think Daniel and the lion's den where God delivers him. Um, all of these times where God is faithful, but I want to look at this one. This is Matthew chapter 28. Um, sorry, Matthew chapter 8. Um, verse 23. And this is what's going on. Jesus has started his Galilean ministry. He is 30, 31 at the time. He's just getting things started. He's performing miracles. He's teaching with authority. And he has already called his 12 disciples at this point. Okay? Jesus wants to cross the Sea of Galilee to get to the other side. This is what happens. Verse 23. If you've ever seen Veggie Tales, you'll be familiar with this. Then he, Jesus, got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake. I don't know why the storm was so mad. Maybe it just had a bad night. I don't know. Suddenly the, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. I love that. I love that here's this furious storm knocking this boat around and Jesus is just off sleeping somewhere. Wish I could sleep like that. 25, the disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. All right, stop right there. Don't read any further. A um, couple of observations. One, before Christ called these young men, the majority of them were professional what? Fishermen, all right? These are deep sea fishermen. Their trade, their life, everything they've ever known before Christ was fishing, if a storm gets them a little worked up, it's a big storm. This is no run-of-the-mill spring shower we're talking about because these guys were hardened fishermen straight from the deck of Deadliest Catch, right? 
If a professional fisherman says the boat's sinking, the boat's sinking. Call it a day. You've got to cut your losses. It's going down. They get nervous. Big storm. Another thing I want to point out is this. The 12 closest people to Jesus on the earth were not exempt from storms. There was no one closer to Jesus than the 12 disciples. And the storm came to them. We have this idea in Western Christianity, and it is espoused from pulpits. It is on the top 10 bestseller lists. If you go to Barnes and Nobles, if you go on iTunes podcasts, it is in the top 10 there as well. That if you just love Jesus, and if you just have enough faith, you will be healthy, wealthy, and everything will be great. You'll have that nice big house in the right area of town, three-car garage with a BMW, a Mercedes, and a Bentley in that order. Your kids are going to be straight-A students. They'll never be rebellious, and no one will ever get sick, and things will be fine if you just love Jesus, and if you just have enough faith, and sow those seeds of faith, which just happens to be 10% of your income. And we're taught that on television and everywhere we go, and here's what I want to tell you. That is not the gospel. The closest people to Jesus were not exempt from the storms of life. In fact, if you run down what happened to 11 of the 12, actually 10 of the 11 surviving disciples, it ended badly for them in this life. They were not exempt from the storms, but you know what? They had God. Because they weren't concerned with God's stuff. They weren't concerned with gifts and blessings. They were concerned with a relationship with our risen Lord. And that's what they got. That was just a tangent. You you can keep that. That was free. I'm not charging for that one. Verse 26, so they go down, they wake Jesus up. In verse 26, he says this. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? That's Jesus' favorite nickname for his disciples. How demeaning. You have little faith. You tried so hard. You're cute. You have little faith. I mean, really. You think that the Son of God is going to go down on a ship in the middle of the Sea of Galilee? That's how it's going down? You have little faith. Then he got up and he rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. I can just imagine Jesus going to the deck of the ship in his onesie and his, uh, what are those things called, snuggies? Stretch it out, yawning. Hey, I'm trying to sleep over here. And the storm is just calm. I can't get my two-year-old to listen to me. And Jesus speaks to naturally occurring phenomenon, and it obeys him. 27, the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and waves obey him. Um, This is conjecture. But it seems like in that moment, it seems like when Jesus calmed the storm, that is when the disciples got it. It seems like that's when it clicked in their minds that maybe, just maybe, 
What God has said 119 times throughout the Old Testament and New, more times than any other commandment in the entire Bible, the commandment, do not fear, for I am with you, maybe he actually means it. Maybe he's on to something. And I think that in this moment, the disciples moved from fear to faith because they began to understand God is with us. Thursday morning, my um, neighbor was having a giant tree removed from his yard. It was a big tree, so they brought one of those pull-behind wood chippers, the ones that you have to pull behind. That's why it's called a pull-behind. Um, that was self-explanatory. I didn't need to say that. And it, this is about 7.30, in my, 7.30 a.m., and my daughter was playing in the room in our house, which is just closest to this wood chipper. And if you have kids or you've been around kids, you know when they're scared. There's this moment where terror sweeps over children. And what happens, at least for my daughter, is she gets perfectly still and her eyes get really big. And then she starts looking for a way to run. Well, so this wood chipper turned on and I saw that moment. I saw immediately she stands straight up and her eyes get big and she turned and she saw me and has, as fast as her little... 12-inch legs would move her, she ran to me. And so I kind of bent down because I, I kind of caught what was going on, and she hit me hard. I mean, she was running fast for a two-year-old, and she threw her arms around my neck, and she would not let go. And I picked her up, and I said, it's going to be okay, baby. And in the moment of fear, in the moment of terror, she ran into the arms of her dad because she knew that there, there was comfort, there was safety, there was love, that I wasn't going to put her down, that I wasn't going to abandon her and simply walk away, that this time was not the time that I was going to turn my back on her. We can learn a lot from kids, can't we? Where do you run when terror strikes? When fears, real fears, come into your life, where do you go? Earlier, we celebrated the Lord's Supper, a sacrament of the church where we believe that Christ is spiritually present, that he is here. And we believe that it seals and signs all of the benefits of salvation unto believers. The reformers called them visible words. And this is a sign that our God is faithful and he loves you and he called you. And if you take anything away, it's this that he's got you. Let's pray. Father, this morning I pray that our fickle hearts, our hearts that are so dispositioned to turn to fear, and when we run from fear, we often turn to things that are less than you. We run to accolades or performance or talents or friends or loved ones. We run to substances. We run to depression and anxiety. And it seems that at the very end, when everything else has failed us, we run to you. Father, help us to run into your arms this morning. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your promises. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Hi. 
My name is Richard Gibbons. I'm one of the pastors here at First Presbyterian. If you are wondering what First Presbyterian Church is like, one of the things you will discover is that each time you come, you will receive a very warm welcome. I have the pleasure of assisting with a number of ministries here at this church. I teach five new member classes a year. also help to lead mission trips to the Dominican Republic. And uh, we at this church do a number of things that impact our community. It's a wonderful place to serve. It's a wonderful place to belong. My main responsibilities include family ministries, which is marriage, men's ministry, and young adults. I also have the joy of serving the night worship service. My passion here at the church is to point others to the love and grace found in Jesus Christ. My particular job is in education, uh, whether it's adult education or youth or children. I have something to do with it uh, and would love to talk with you at any time about the things that you can learn from the Bible in our education courses here at First Presbyterian Church. Congregational care covers a lot of ground in a, a church like ours. Essentially, we believe that uh, the mission of the church is to care for one another uh, as well as to outreach in the community. So our desire is to provide for the spiritual, emotional, and physical care of the members of our congregation and extend that also to the needs of our community. I'm Tina Jones. I'm the director of the children's ministry here at First Presbyterian. Scripture says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. We have a very vibrant children's ministry. When you come on a Sunday morning, your children have not just childcare, we also offer ministry. One of the amazing things about First Presbyterian is our location. We're situated at the heart of Greenville, a growing and vibrant city. Everything from children's ministry and youth ministry to a prayer ministry and being very active in the community gives us an opportunity to spread and share the love of Christ. If you are looking for a Sunday morning experience that is engaging, vibrant and life transforming, please come and join us.